Reconciliation. Where is the honor of the crown? Reconciliation has to start with Her Majesty the Queen and all the Treaty Indians of Canada. Under the crown's care, you raped the land of the people, and then you raped the people themselves. That's acts of genocide. Are we to be idle? If the Canadian government won't honor our Cypress Hills land claim, we will go to the world court and tell them what has been done to our people. We want our rights protected. I will raise my hands and somehow, some way, God allowed us to be still here. So we want our rights back. We want our lands protected. We want our Cypress Hills land back. Chief Elsie Jack, Carry the Kettle, Nakoda First Nation. Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to talk to Jim Tanner about a new collectively authored book on the history of Carry the Kettle Nakoda First Nation in Saskatchewan. Jim Tanner led a major land use study of the Carry the Kettle Nakoda First Nation and worked very much on this particular history. He, along with a number of other contributors, worked to produce this collective history of Carry the Kettle Nakota First Nation. The resulting book, Ohu Knaga, The Story of Carry the Kettle First Nation, was published by University of Regina Press in 2022. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. As I've stated in my introduction, this really is a collective history of uh, the Carry the Kettle Nakota First Nation in Saskatchewan. Uh, can you explain how this book was actually done uh, in this way, and how did the community tell its own story through this book? Yes, well, that is the key to the whole project, was to get together a large, larger number of people, specifically the Nakota people, to tell their own story, but also all of the researchers and experts in various fields and historians who had written about the Nakota people for years in the past. So I was approached originally by Chief Elsie Jack to help her, help the First Nation put together this project. And she specified that she wanted this this book to be told from the viewpoint of the First Nation as much as physically possible. And she also helped me identify experts in the, in the area, uh, specifically uh, uh, David Miller, who had done a lot of historical research, and and David was a person who 
was also involved in uh, a deep relationship with the Nakota people, both in Canada and the U.S., and had uh, as known across uh, Canada and the U.S. as being one of the prime experts of the history uh, of this First Nation. And I might add that he is a longtime historian of the First Nations University of Canada. Yes, yes, sir. Um, and we also uh, uh, got uh, a very, very um, long list of elders who we spent a lot of time with, both interviewing individually and interviewing uh, in groups. Uh, where we break out into smaller groups and have major discussions about the history and the, the things that had happened in the past. And we, of course, all recorded all of that, and that all went into the, uh, to the production. Um, and that's really, it took about uh, a year and a half to do uh, of lots of hard work. <laughs> Right. Now, um, I know that the study is connected to the land use study that uh, you were involved with and, and the claim that was being made by the First Nation in terms of, of another region of the province located some distance from the current reserve of the, of the First Nation, and that is in Cypress Hills. But can you give us some quick background on that study and why a history of the First Nation uh, ended up uh, being written up as, as a, a book? Because it, it could have just been a, a land use or a land claim study uh, as opposed to a full history of the First Nation. Essentially, it, it, it really cuts to the basic root of what a traditional land use study is and should be. In order for a traditional land use study to be effective, it has to address the history. It has to be a history of their land use as well as their current land use. And it has to describe the evolution of their land use. And of course, land use is such a fundamental part of the livelihood, of the lives, of the spirituality, of all the aspects of their lively uh, life. So, in order for a good traditional land use study to be done, it has to include all the history. Basically, that's uh, that's a summary of it. Anyway, for at least a thousand years, and probably much longer before Europeans arrived, there's evidence of the vast range of the Nakoda, what used to be called Assiniboine, covering a vast swath of what is today's northern Montana and North Dakota, all the way to southern Saskatchewan and southeastern Manitoba. Did this area overlap with other First Nation groups aside from the Nakoda? Well, that's that's also a very key, key idea. Um, and the answer to it involves a description of the history, <clears throat> including migrations and various relationships with the bands that occupied the entire area surrounding the area you just described. And so to summarize it, um, some time in the, uh, we would call it prehistoric, pre-written history uh, times, the Nakota people 
seem to have shifted westward and further southward to to take more advantage of the bison we call it the bison economy um, so so in effect uh, they had moved from their original location which in their history which in their uh, in their traditional stories and their uh, uh, creation history they described Lake Winnipeg as being that important area and they used to surround and occupy the area around Lake Winnipeg and uh, occasionally go into the into the prairie to harvest the bison and then over time as actually I have discovered in my research several different nations in this period this early prehistoric period had moved from the from the uh, woodlands from the parklands that they originally occupied to the prairies and they uh, became more of a prairie oriented culture they changed their some of their cultural ways they learned about how to live uh, more efficiently in the in the prairies and uh, uh, became prairie people um, so so they 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 moved into an area that was apparently occupied by the the Blackfoot Confederacy um, in southern Saskatchewan and also there were several other First Nation uh, bands or tribes further south in Montana they they also um, interacted with them um, and sometimes that interaction was uh, violent and and other times it was friendly and so there were in the archaeological history which we've found to be extremely useful in in understanding it uh you have times when the it was identified in the, in the campfire that other peoples uh would share the campfire with the uh with with the um Nakota people and at other times it was recorded that that people had uh, uh, kind of violent uh, interactions with them. Well, getting back to the fact that these were a prairie people, can you talk about the Nakota land use habitats and cycles that you describe a bit in chapter two? Ah, yes. So essentially the, the land use was, was um, a function of, of when the animals were available, when the plants were available, according to the seasons, according to when they were ripe. Uh, so the, the the culture and the and the land use of the First Nation adapted itself to the realities of the seasonal patterns. And so the bison had a seasonal pattern as well, and they would be uh, quite often they would move into the um, woodlands to get away from the cold winter uh, winds and uh, in the summer they would move onto the prairies and this is in fact the way that the uh, first nations people who who harvested bison 
that's the way they did things as well. Um, but they, they not only harvested bison, they also did some fishing. They picked berries, they picked herbs, they sometimes harvested other animals like deer and moose, and uh, they had uh, they harvested different kinds of fur-bearing animals uh, before the fur trade when they were just harvesting for their own use. And so um, they had basically a seasonal cycle where, where they would winter uh, sometimes a little further north in the parklands, uh, and, and they would divide up into smaller groups during that time, and they would harvest different animals, sometimes bison that they would opportunistically find. Other times they would harvest different animals. Then in the springtime, they would prepare for their move into the, into the prairie. Sometimes they would gather around close to a lake. They would do some fishing. They would prepare their uh, whatever uh, processes they were using to travel. Uh, in the early times, in the dog days, it would be uh, by walking. And, and uh, in the later days, in the, when they had horses, they would prepare them uh, to travel into those lands on horses. Right. And so when the Europeans came... Uh... And so post-contact, they brought communicable diseases in the fur trade with them. So what was the impact of smallpox epidemics on the Nakoda? And then how did the Nakoda deal with the European-controlled fur trade? Um, yes. Well, I'll start. I, I think maybe starting first with how did the Nakoda deal with the fur trade. Um, the Nakoda became one of the tribes that uh, were middlemen, particularly with the Hudson's Bay Company. And um, they partnered with the Cree, uh, with whom they had, they had been very friendly for a very long time. And uh, they, uh, they got uh, products from the Hudson's Bay, traded them with the other tribes and uh, brought her furs back to the Hudson's Bay to pay for the goods that they had, uh, that they had taken. So, um, and that was a lot with the uh, Hudson's Bay company on the Hudson Bay, where they would, where the posts were. And this is an important uh, fact because what the, Assiniboine or Nakoda did was they moved back into their old territory or they they frequently frequented more their old territory which was the area around Lake Winnipeg and the uh, and the rivers that led to the Hudson's Bay so they were moving back in that area to 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 participate in the fur trade and uh as a result uh they uh, they had an interesting relationship with the Blackfoot and the uh, other Dene tribes in the uh, uh, in the West and some in the South when they went to Montana where they where they were middlemen. Um, and then um, they they did suffer from uh, some of the diseases uh, in the early days. Um, but it wasn't quite as um, devastating uh, until they started to 
um, have more and more contact with the 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 uh, white settlers, and so um, that happened after there was a lot uh, later on in the fur trade when there was a lot of more contact with the settlers and more contact with the uh, with the fur traders who had moved in land from the posts on the coast into the middle of the the continent, and so what was happening is the uh, the diseases like smallpox got transferred further in inland. And uh, one important story that has come from the elders is that when they had an outbreak of the smallpox, the northern group, um, they were only called the northern group because they spent a little bit more, their families associated with that group spent a little bit more time in the north. That northern group found out about the outbreak of smallpox and left the south, meaning left the Montana area, um, and headed north to be away and clear from the um, from the smallpox ep epidemic. And it's it's also believed that the Stony people, uh, who are also Nakota people, uh, did did so as well, and that's why they ended up. Uh, so far north and west uh, with their existing reserves. How did the fur trade and the epidemics of disease alter the Nakota's traditional way of life? The Nakota people uh, were well known, uh, according to the elders and according to some statements that you can find in the historical literature, as being peacemakers, as being uh, capable of making friends and um, helping other people. And the, um, I, th I think it's my hypothesis that, that that might have come from the fact that they did move before contact in ancient times from one ecosystem to another and they encountered different peoples and they developed coping mechanisms for for uh, being with those other people and so and so they were very friendly well when they when the fur trade started they uh, aligned themselves they they were aligned already with the Cree and the Cree and the Assiniboine the, and the Nakota went up to the, appeared at the trading posts and uh, became, first they would tra trade the fur that they got themselves and then they would uh, offer to be um, traders with the other tribes, bring even bring the other tribes up to the, to the forts. And um, probably um, less than other First Nations, less than perhaps the Cree, certainly less than the Iroquois, less than the uh, Anishinaabe. The, the um, Assiniboine, the Nakota were self-sufficient in their bison economy. And so the fur trade was something they did that they profited from 
and uh, as a result, they did. Uh, they were exposed to disease, and they tried to escape from the disease. But but they were very self-sufficient, and the big effect on the Nakoda people wasn't really until the buffalo were wiped out in the mid 1800s at the, the mid to late 1800s and that is when there was horrendous effects upon the nakoda people in fact that was the time when they took refuge uh in the cypress hills just as the last of the buffalo were killed off and also uh obviously the us government was waging war on some indigenous groups but why was this area the cypress hills so attractive to the nakoda hills are a different ecology and uh and they're very close to the prairie so you have hills like the cypress hills you have the moose mountains in southeastern saskatchewan as well although they're not as high they're very similar in terms of their sacred nature to indigenous peoples so um, these were places where one would pursue vision quests where one would um, sometimes winter where where the the tribes would gather for spiritual ceremonies where um the uh, number and various uh, types of animals and plants were much more varied, and they could obtain uh, different kinds of supplies. So the Cypress Hills was one of those wonderful areas where they would take refuge from the climate, from the, from the uh, seasonal cycles as well. So it it wasn't just they that they sought res, refuge there from the the craziness of the of the massacre of the buffalo. Uh, it was a very common and spiritual area. They have the CTK has uh, carry the kettle First Nation has uh, grave sites there, uh, old, old grave sites as well, and uh, there's. Uh, uh, paintings in the rocks and that kind of stuff uh, in that area. So it's, it's, a, it's quite a phenomenal area from that point of view. Mm -hmm. So um, going further then, uh, just tell us about uh, the Cypress Hills Massacre um, and the history of the Cypress Hills Massacre, but also the tremendous story, I mean, I was quite struck by uh, Elder Bernice Salto's story of her great-grandmother stabbed many times. Maybe if you could give us a short summary of that a very personal story as part of the story of the Cypress Hills Massacre. Certainly, I'll, I'll try my best. Um, so... The Cypress Hills, of course, was an area that the First Nation frequented, and there were a couple of of bands within the larger First Nation who were uh, in the in the area wh where the massacre eventually took place, and um, they were conducting their normal spiritual and or uh, uh, livelihood activities um 
in in that era, um, this was of course after the American Civil War. There was a lot of um, people who had uh, left the uh, service of the American military and went west to seek their fortune. And some of these individuals were known as wolvers. People would go out and, and uh, shoot wolves for uh, for the value of their skins or for the for the value of the, uh, the people were frightened of wolves, so they wanted these wolvers to go out and kill them. Um, and there was a particular group of wolvers that uh, frequented the, this area and had the year before encountered um, some actually other Assiniboine people and uh, incorrectly assumed that those Assiniboine people had stolen their horses and uh, had had just shot at them and killed a couple of them um, in this uh, in this pretty uh, crazy time um, where they uh, it was it was very much the wild west uh, where there was no real law and uh, these obviously military oriented people had uh, had no uh, worry about just going off and killing a few native people so that was the year before um, the same or similar group of these wolvers um, then for the specific purpose of looking for horses that they felt had been stolen from them uh, encountered the uh, the Nakota people that I described earlier who were the ancestors of some of the ancestors of the Carry the Kettle First Nation and they were camped uh, in that group uh, in that area and uh, the wolvers came in and uh, so then there's there's different stories from different people which you can understand uh, uh, there was there was a uh, fur trading post uh, which also sold liquor in that area and uh, they have told their stories about what they thought happened with the massacre there was stories that have been told and told by the first nation and uh, and of course the various various stories that have occurred over time as this being an important event um, but my understanding of it in reading and listening to these different stories is that uh, the wolvers uh, eventually uh, approached the people uh, without giving them any indication that they were trying to uh, recover horses they uh, they proceeded to get the uh, uh, people interested in drinking and they uh, they gave them quite a lot of uh, alcohol and drank with them quite a bit and um, <clears throat> then they looked around for uh, horses thinking that maybe the people had put the horses somewhere in a strange place that they couldn't see um, then there was some sort of a dispute over one particular horse, um, which started some shooting and the, uh, wolvers ended up knowing what they were doing, um, basically shooting quite a few, maybe as many as 20 
of the uh, men and women from the First Nation um, in their drunken stupor and uh, their anger and uh, incorrect assumption that these people had stolen their horses. As it turned out, it, it may have been the Blackfoot people who had stolen horses from them uh, maybe two weeks or a month earlier, and the horses were long gone. Um, apparently, one of the people in the the um, fur trading post had offered to uh, talk to the wolvers about who might have stolen their horses and tried to discourage them from attacking the Assiniboine. But uh, the uh, there were stories of uh, rapes that happened by, uh, from the uh, from the wolvers attacking the women after they had killed the men. Um, I do not know the specifics of uh, the story of uh, the woman called Stapp many times, except to say that uh, this would have happened at this period, at that period of time. One of the most uh, interesting parts of the book is about the Nakoda leaving the Cypress Hills uh, and settling on a reserve east of Regina uh, in a region known as Indian Head. And in fact, they went back and forth about three times, and this sort of journey became known as the Canadian Trail of Tears. Uh, can you tell us what happened in terms of the movement and why the Nakoda moved uh, from Cypress Hills to this uh, this other area, which is quite some distance from the Cypress Hills, and what motivated it? Because I know that the the reason wasn't uh, the desire of the First Nation to move. This is during the period of the government starving the native people in this region. Um, there was a policy developed by the government to limit the rations. They wanted to move all of the First Nations who had congregated in the Cypress Hills out of the Cypress Hills. Um, they used a couple of excuses for it. Um, but nevertheless, they attempted to cut all their rations uh, now, this was also the period when the buffalo had been uh, basically uh, extinguished. So they did not have their traditional sources. The Cypress Hills did have a certain number of, of uh, animals available, but with uh, some 5,000 native people, perhaps as many as maybe more, uh, those kind of resources would be destroyed. It, include, it included many of the Cree, peoples uh, and uh, the Assiniboine people and some um, Anishinaabe who had, who had moved into the area as well. And they were all uh, trying to get them to move. The, the Cree and others didn't have as much claim on the Cypress Hills. And so they were able to get some of those First Nations to move more quickly, but they had a lot of trouble trying to get the, uh, the, the Assiniboine to move. And uh, the, both the uh, 
the military people that were there and the, the RCMP, uh, the uh, uh, Indian agents were working hard to convince them to move out into the Bald Prairie. Well, of course, the, the First Nations people would never winter in the middle of the Bald Prairie. And they were very, very reluctant. And you said they left the Cypress Hills. Well, they did leave the Cypress Hills, but under duress. Uh, they were they were being starved. They were offered that they would only give be given rations if they moved. They they moved on to a area when they did when they were forced to move. They moved into an area which where there was uh, an old Cree graveyard with uh, parts of uh, dead bodies still lying in trees. Um, and of course, this was very offensive to them. Uh, going back and forth was basically them um, escaping from that uh, area, going south to their relatives in Montana or escaping back to the Cypress Hills uh, in places where they felt they could better survive. Um, and that's basically what happened. Uh, at one point, the, the government tried to put them on a rail, uh, on a rail line, and uh, the rail line... Uh, was just made and the and the actual cars turned over and actually damaged uh, some of the people and uh, people who are not in good shape because they had been starved. This was this was a huge uh, problem and uh, a terrible example of what the Canadian government did to them. I think this book is a wonderful mixture of oral history with documentary history, along with uh, anthropological and archaeological history, and actually is a very interesting model for uh, other First Nations to contemplate when constructing their own histories in terms of uh, a book for publication. So I want to thank you very much, Jim, for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate being here. My guest today was Jim Tanner. He's involved in the collective authorship of Ohu Knage, the story of Carry the Kettle Nakota First Nation, published by University of Regina Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We also want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press. UBC Press, McGill Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on May 19, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.